Well, good morning, Sozo City Church. It is so good to be with you again on another beautiful Sunday. And I'm so glad we always get a chance, even if we're not in the building, but we still get a chance to gather together, whether you're in our home or you're in one of the other homes or you're gathering, uh, gathering together with your friends or your family or you're watching this maybe on a drive or at work, wherever you are right now, I hope you are having such a blessed day and I hope you uh, will be encouraged by this message. I'm super excited for this word. It's been something that I've wanted to preach on for a long time. It's been something that I believe is a, is a good word for on the back end of what we've been talking about over the past few weeks on this idea of faith and what Lungs has really brought us through uh, on the idea of pressed for promise. And, you know, he's taken us through this whole story of being uh, going back to the roots and going back to uh, the promises God has given us. And we're going back to uh, believing in faith again and being not only a community of faith, but also going back to our individual uh, faith and how we need to go through the pressing to receive the promise. And last week, I hope you watched the message, but last week I preached the message on keep your eyes up, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. This whole idea that through the pressing, through the trials we go through, that we need to have the right perspective, that without the right perspective, uh, we begin to look around at our surroundings, begin to look around at the things going on. And as soon as we take our eyes off of Jesus, as soon as we take our perspective off what heaven sees, the, the, the situation going on around us, the troubles going on around us, the trials that uh, seem to be coming at us that we're going through, uh, seem to be a lot stronger and a lot more prominent than the promise God gave us. And you know, we went through James chapter one, verse two through eight, and it talked about the trials uh, that are to come and that it's a testing that will produce steadfastness and, and that we need to count uh, these trials as joy, which is uh, sometimes a frustrating thing to try to comprehend. But we, we talked about the story and, and broke it down and really uh, began to uh, understand what certain words meant. And that's what I want to do again this morning. And that's what I love so much about our church, even from the very beginning uh, of Sozo City Church, is that we've made the word the main thing. We've made the word and, and the word of God and, and the passages, uh, the main ideas of our message. It's not just an idea lungs or I have, but the main focus of our message is the word of God. And, you know, the goal of these messages, uh, uh, when, we, when we break down these words, is so you can take what, we, what you've learned on these Sundays and apply it to your daily devotional. You know, we don't want to just be a people uh, of believers that just read our word and a few verses on Sunday, but we want to be in the word every single day. So I just want to encourage you, if you're not in your word, get in your word, take notes on Sundays so that you can learn uh, how we how we break down certain words and the importance of the original meaning. You know, when, when Lungs gave us the original meaning of the word ziglag, how much uh, uh, it made the story make more sense. And when we talked about last week and this idea of the testing and the steadfastness, and when we look at the original meaning of those words and how much uh, uh, better that story maybe sounded, how much better the idea from James sounded when we actually learned the original meaning and the story that where it's actually the ability to stay in there through the trials, that steadfastness. And we're not just supposed to put on the, the, this emotion of joy, but it's actually a way of life. It's it's the character. It's the it's the testing of our faith, which is the the, the character of our faith, the, the endurance of our faith. And so we went through this idea and, you know, we came to, to the conclusion of these last few weeks that a lot of our Christian walk, a lot of our, our Christian life is determined by our perspective. You know, perspective is such... Uh, uh, an important thing on our life and whether our eyes are fixed on Jesus or whether our eyes are fixed on a situation we went through the story uh, in Mark of where uh, uh, Peter uh, you know called out to Jesus and uh, told him to come out in the water and Peter was walking towards Jesus and as soon uh, as he took his eyes off Jesus as soon as he allowed the waves and the wind and the circumstances to go around uh, uh, 
to allow to come into his mind and to, to, to confuse him and to bring doubt. And he began to sink. And the beautiful thing about Jesus in that story is that he doesn't shame Peter. He doesn't uh, just let him sink, but no, he reaches out his hand and he saves him. But he asks the question, why did you doubt? And, and we came to the conclusion that doubting is the polar opposite of faith. You can't have a mindset of doubt. You can't begin to doubt if you are faithful. Faithfulness and doubting are two polar opposite ends of the spectrum. One cannot exist in the presence of the other. If you're going to be faithful, doubting has to be pushed to the other side. If you're going to begin to doubt, faith will clearly be out of the picture because you are no longer focused on what Jesus is leading you to. You're no longer focused on him and his perspective and his understanding what he sees and what he knows about the trials. And so we went through this idea of, of perspective and the seasons of life and how they matter so much in the ways in which we conduct ourselves and the character of our faith and the faith we have in God and how we uh, outwork those trials in our life and what they produce in our life. And what I notice is that when our perspective is off what heaven sees, the trials seem to be a lot louder in our mind. Have you noticed as soon as you, you step away from maybe reading your Bible every day, as soon as you step away from praying every day, as soon as you begin to maybe create a little distance between you and God, the things, the chaos, the, the chaoticness, the, the craziness of this world, the craziness of our lives and our day-to-day -day lives and maybe the friendships or the family situations we have or the things we're dealing with begin to get louder the further and further we push ourselves away from God. And so we need to be closer to Him. We need to continue to pursue him. And so nobody likes being stuck in a trial. Like I, I, I don't ever want to go through another difficult season in my life, but we know James promises us, Jesus promises that there's going to be trials in this world. There's going to be difficult seasons in this world. And you know, we can't prepare for it. We can't know when it's going to happen, but what we can do is continue to count it all joy. What we can do is continue to have the faith in him and keep our perspective on him. But what I've, what I've also found about trials is that sometimes, especially when you become a Christian, especially when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and begin to uh, try to emulate your life off of him, not all the trials we go through are about us. You know, again, I talk about it all the time. We like to make things about ourselves. In our culture, we like to make things more focused on me than we do on other people. But when we look at the life of Jesus and we see the, the ministry he did, he was uh, constantly with those who were on the outcast, those who, who were sick, those who, who, were, who were broken, those who needed healing, those who uh, maybe he shouldn't have been communicating with uh, according to the culture of the Jewish leaders. He was having dinners with those uh, who had different opinions of, of him. And Jesus was with people that had problems. You know, we're going to go through seasons of life that, of course, like we talked about the past few weeks, we're going to go through seasons of pressing. We're going to go through seasons of trials that are fully focused on ourselves. But we're also going to encounter seasons of life. We're going to encounter situations in this world that, that aren't about us. But we have the choice to help in those situations. We have the choice to still have faith in those situations. And so what I, what I think happens a lot of times, especially when we're maybe a new Christian or, or, or we're trying to grow our strength in God, is that we begin to think that we need to prove something to God in order to help other people. We think that we need to bring our biggest and our best. We think we need to begin, begin to take on these situations on our own. You know, you, you might have a heart for homeless people and you think you just need to take the situation on your own and you, you try to do everything you can on your own and you don't go to God about it. You don't go to a wise counsel about it. You just try to do everything on your own 
and try to prove something to God. And, you know, I think oftentimes we talked about it last week too, that we think God is sometimes looking down on us from heaven, waiting for us to break. That he's looking down on us, waiting for us to fail. And that is not the God that we serve. The God that we serve wants to be present with us. The God we want to serve is just like Jesus on that water with, with, uh, with Peter when he walked and he began to take his eyes off him and began to sink. He reached out his hand and helped him and calmed the storm. That is the God we serve. That is the Jesus we serve. And so when we're going through these trials, when, we're, when we begin to see things going on in this world, we don't need to be, begin to try to just work harder. We don't need to just uh, begin to try to put our head down and try to figure it out on our own. But we need to ask the help of God. We need to uh, bring what we have. We need to uh, try to just do the best we can with the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of God in this. And again, you look through the biblical narrative and the people he chose because sometimes I think for a lot of us, what we think is that we might go through these situations, we might see things in this world and we might not think that we're good enough to help. We might not think that we have the resources to help. But again, you look from Genesis to Revelation, you see the people God used in the Old Testament and the characters he used and the individuals he used to advance his kingdom. You see the 12 disciples Jesus chose to work with. They were not the, the, the wisest people at times. They were not the smartest. They were not the most educated. They were not the wealthiest. They were not the warriors that, that you might think you need to fight in these battles. He, he was not the hero-like uh, character that you would expect to take on the task as insane, as, in, uh, as crazy as advancing the kingdom of God. Uh, the creator of the universe taking on this mission and partnering with him, you think he would choose people uh, that, that would have the hero-like characteristics. But a lot of time he chose individuals like you and I. That, that he did this for a reason because he doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, try to advance the kingdom with a select few. But for those who call on his name, for those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who begin to live out a life following him. What is the Great Commission? I talked about this a few weeks ago. The Great Commission is for everyone to go and make disciples. That we are supposed to be disciples and to go and make the disciples. It is not just for the select few. It's not just for those who speak on platforms. It is not just those who uh, um, uh, work in the church. It is for every believer who calls on the name of Jesus and accepts Jesus' love and grace. He chooses to partner with everyone and he partners with everyone in a unique way. Not everyone is going to be used in the, in the same way. He's not going to use everyone at the same time, but he's going to use everyone for a specific purpose at a specific time. And when we encounter these trials that aren't about us, he wants to partner with us. And, you know, it makes me think, of the uh, David and Goliath story, you know, it's probably one of the most popular biblical stories that you've heard if you grew up in the church. I know for me growing up in the church my whole life, I've probably heard this story countless times that uh, when you begin to hear stories like this, you um, you can overlook certain things because you've heard it so many times, especially when it gets put into children's books or into TV, like Christian TV shows or, or cartoons. And you can begin to overlook the importance of the story, but if you don't know the David and Goliath story, if you do, I just want to remind you that we, we have these two characters, two polar opposite characters. We have David, who is this teenage boy, who's this shepherd boy, who, who's been living out, uh, you know, protecting his sheep, doing his thing. And then we have Goliath, who, who is this, you know, what, what, what we know of him is that he was probably about 10 feet tall, five to 600 pounds. He, he was this great warrior. He was the champion for the last 10 years, which meant he, that he killed at least 100 men per year over the last 10 years in this type of one-on-one -on -one battle. 
So, so Goliath is this, this beast of a human. That would ha his spear was about 14 feet long and just the tip of his spear was 16 pounds and the chain mill that he wore, uh, just the chain mill, not the rest of his armor, was 150 pounds. And so, you know, David just looking out from a, a human side, from just a realistic side, he looks out at this man Goliath and he, he probably just thinks even if, the, if Goliath just fell on me, he would probably kill me. Like he didn't even need to fight me. He just needed to fall over and collapse on me because David was this scrawny, young, teenage boy who, who wasn't training in the army, who wasn't training to be this fierce warrior, who, who had never probably picked up a, a sword and an armor and went into proper battle. And so we have these two characters. And when David shows up to the scene, all of Israel is completely afraid to fight him. And you see, David... He, he, this situation wasn't about him. This trial wasn't about him. There was nothing that he did to, to deserve this trial. There's nothing that he did to even have to really be in this trial. But David shows up to the scene and all of Israel, Saul and the rest of the warriors and these men that probably could have fought Goliath in, in a better way in, in the army sense and in the warrior sense than David. But David showed up and he brought what he had which was a willful spirit, which was a, a spirit that says, God, if you're calling me to do this, I'm going to follow you. God, I want to be faithful uh, towards you. And David brought what he had. And we know the story that he had his sling and he had his rock and he went out and he spoke against Goliath for speaking against the name of the Lord. And he flung the rock with his sling and hit Goliath in the, in the head in the temple. And, and he collapsed and he was dead right there. Like when we think about this story, I think a lot of times, we miss the point that this wasn't David's battle to fight. This wasn't something that he should have had to fight. And I think there's a lot of times in the situations we go through in life, we see things that are going on in this world and we think that we don't have to get involved. But I think a lot of the times we get afraid because we think we don't have the right resources. Just like David, he didn't come with the expertise of how to fight. He didn't come with a new plan of how to defeat this man, Goliath, that had been a champion for the last 10 years. He wasn't studying away with the sheep, learning how to you know, properly attack this man and come up with this new idea uh, and try to present it to the Israelite army. No, no. He just showed up with what he had and had a spirit that was willing to say, God, if you're calling me to this, I'm willing to obey. And so the question we have to ask from this David story is what did he, where did he get the courage to confront Goliath? How was he able to attack with such boldness? And I believe it's this, and it's the title of the message. It's David brought what he had. And that's what I want to preach on this morning is bring what you have. You know, you might not have a lot. You might have little. You might have a lot of resources. All you have to do uh, to partner with God in these trials and these situations is bring what you have. And I want to go through this passage in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Again, I really love stories from the Old Testament that, and then finding uh, a New Testament uh, stories that uh, relate to it or that give similar questions and similar answers to it. And I believe this passage in John chapter 6 asks a similar question. Are you going to let what you have determine the outcome. Because again, David, he could have let what he had, he could have let the situation determine the outcome, but he chose to bring what he had and allow God to do the rest. And that's the question that we see in John chapter 6, is that are we going to let what we have determine the outcome? Or are we going to bring what we have and let God do the rest? So turn with me to John chapter 6 verses 1 through 13. 
It's going to come on the screen as well if you don't have your Bible, but I really encourage you to take notes, uh, bring out your word because we, we, me and lungs or whoever's preaching really like to try to give you certain insights so that you can take this and apply it to your weekly studies and apply it to uh, your understanding of the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles open, John chapter 6, verses 1 through, 3, uh, 1 through 13, and it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side, to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover of the feast of the Jews was at hand. So we just have to stop right there for just a moment because again, you're probably going to get tired of it whenever I preach, but I'm always going to talk about context because context matters so much to the story. It brings so much insight into the story. It allows us to fully understand what is going on and where what's taking place and the significance of where they're at. And it begins the, 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 uh, the, this chapter in John chapter 6 by saying, after this, so we know that what happened in chapter 5, what he had just talked about and after 5 was directly after. But again, we might think without context, without understanding this fully, that this happened, you know, right after uh, uh, what just took place in chapter 5. But again, in verse 4, what does it say? Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. So we know that there is actually a six-month gap between what took place in chapter 5 and what's now taking place in chapter 6. Because we know in chapter 5 that there was another feast that was going on. So when you look into the history of it, you can see, oh, this was in the springtime and this was in the wintertime. You, you, you can see the different times of the year that these were taking place. And so we know when John says after this, that there's actually been a six month gap of Jesus doing ministry. There's actually been a six month gap of them leaving uh, where they were in chapter five of Judea, uh, where Jesus was communicating and healing people, but they had these Jewish leaders, these Jewish authorities who were trying to kill him. So they had to escape. And now we're in Galilee, but it's not just right away. There's been six months in between these passages and so it, it also gives insight to the great crowds that were following him. So Jesus has been working his way from Judea now to Galilee. And there's this great crowd that has been following him. And Jesus knows that this large crowd that is following, not all of them believe that he's the son of God, but a lot of them are probably thrill seekers. They, they've probably heard uh, about these miracles Jesus has been doing. And so maybe they have selfish reasons and they want to go get healed themselves, or they just want to see this because they, they heard it's really cool what this, this man named Jesus is doing and the healings he's doing and the uh, demons he's delivering from people and the you know, the, the water into wine, all the, the walking on water, all these things Jesus has done, they had heard about. So there's this large crowd that is following him. And what's interesting about this story too, is that, and, and why it's so important and why I'm so excited to speak on this and why I wanted to speak on this is because we know the way in which John wrote separate from the synoptic gospels is that he was writing additional material to what the synoptic gospels had. And so this is the only miracle besides the resurrection that John includes that is similar and the same as the synoptic gospel. So there's only two miracles that take place in John that are in the rest of the synoptic gospel. So this is clearly an important story. This is clearly something we need to pay attention to. This is clearly a, a wise lesson we need to hear in this because if John took the, the space out of his, his writing to write about the story when everything else was, was additional material to what the synoptic gospels wrote, that there's something clearly important to this and it begins the narrative of the of the of the beautiful narrative of Jesus becoming the bread of life. And so we get into this and it says after this Jesus went to the other side so he's leaving Judea and they get to this mountain uh, to begin to rest with his disciples and again we have to remember 
Like, uh, anytime Jesus goes to the mountain, there's probably something that is going to take place. It's a, a significant style of writing. It's a significant moment when Jesus goes to the mountain. That's where the transfiguration happened. That's where the Sermon on the Mount happened. That's where he was tempted by the devil. That's where uh, he began to choose the 12. Uh, when we know Jesus goes to the mountain, it, it's something miraculous is going to take place. It's something that we need. It's kind of a, it's like highlighting, like, hey, he's on the mountain. Something is going to take place. Pay attention. What is going to come next? And so it says, and this is where I want to camp for just a little bit, but it goes on uh, after verse four, that they're on the side of the mountain. And it says in verse five, lifting up his eyes, Jesus lifts up his eyes from the side of the mountain and sees that a large crowd was coming toward him. This large crowd that was just with him had traveled, you know, they had gone on the boat to go to the other side and this large crowd had followed all the way. It's probably about two to three miles that they walked on shore and it's the end of the day. And Jesus sees this large crowd coming toward him and he asks Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And this is why I want to camp for this message titled, Bring What You Have, because if we just step into the story and we know Jesus over the last six months had been doing uh, ministry after ministry, healing after healing, salvation after salvation. There, there's probably been so many things that we don't even know. You know, in John chapter 21, it talks about that. Uh, all If all the recordings of his miracles, if, if all his miracles were recorded, there wouldn't be enough space in books on this world to contain it. Jesus did so many miracles. Jesus did so many things that we don't even know about because they couldn't write everything he did. So we can imagine over these last six months, the disciples have seen some pretty crazy things. They'd probably seen people raised from dead to life. They had seen, uh, you know, Jesus uh, heal people who are sick. We had seen Jesus care for those who are on the outside. Uh, you could see Jesus being with the orphans and with the widows and eating dinner with those who he technically shouldn't have been eating dinner with and communing with those he shouldn't have been with. They had seen for six months this life of Jesus and this new perspective uh, on an outlook on life. And they had seen Jesus's compassion for the last six months. And Jesus, again, this is what I love so much about Jesus is that after six months of tiring ministry, after this long journey, after a long day already of preaching, after a long day already of healing, where the attention is fully on him, it shows the full humanity of not only of Jesus, but of the disciples. And, you know, we're, we're the same way after a long week. I don't know about you, or maybe after a long season, there's nothing better than coming home, sitting on the couch, having some uh, good pizza and watching Netflix. There's nothing like just relaxing and taking a little bit of time off. And the, the, di the disciples here and Jesus here are, are kind of at the same point. They had been through this long season. They had been through a six month stretch uh, of every day. And, you know, they had to work still too to provide. And so it wasn't that they were just walking around healing people 24 seven, but they, they had to uh, work jobs to make money as well in order to continue the work of the ministry. And so it had been this long time and the disciples get to this mountain and they're tired and Jesus is probably tired, but Jesus still has compassion. And I think this is a big insight for us too as believers that we still need to have insight on those outside as well. That even when we're tired, even uh, maybe when we're going through a good season and we don't have trials and we're not going through the pressing, there's other people that are still going through difficult seasons. Jesus looks out 
and he has compassion and he knows that these people you know are away from a village away from a town there's no food around there like like on a grassy hillside you know near a lake and, and there's nothing for them to eat and we know it's a large crowd of 5000 men but that means that there's probably 15 to 20,000 people when you include, include uh, women and children. So there's this great crowd and Jesus looks out and has compassion on them. And he asks Philip the question. He says, hey, Philip, hey, like I know we're tired and I, I know we're exhausted, but we have this great crowd following us. And, and like it's been great taking care of their spiritual needs the last few months. It's been great, you know, healing people. It's been great uh, restoring people. It's been great bringing those who are on the outside back to the inside, giving life to people. But we also need to care about them physically as well. And, uh, you know, they're tired. They're exhausted. Where can we go and buy them bread to eat? And this must have been probably a confusing question to them. And I think I understand Philip's response that we're going to get to. But again, we have hindsight. We, we understand the bigger picture. So I think sometimes we look at Philip and we look at his response and be like, ah, I wouldn't do that because, you know, I've seen Jesus the last six months. I know the miracles Jesus can do. I know he can turn water into wine. I know he can cast out a net into the lake when they haven't caught fish all night and he can bring in an enormous amount of fish. I, I know this, but the disciples are just as human as we are and they're living in this moment present. They don't have the courtesy of reading the whole story like we do. And so Jesus asked this question, and it says that he said this to test him. And again, what did we talk about last week? What did this word test mean in the original language? That is not an A, B, C, D answer that Philip had to get one of them right. Otherwise, he passed or failed. It's actually this testing. This, this question he asked was to test the character of his faith. Just like James wrote that the testing was to test the character of our faith that would produce steadfastness and the ability to hang in there. Jesus here too is not testing Philip with a right or wrong answer of an A, B, C, or D that he's looking for just one answer. But he's but he says this to test the character of Philip. He's like, Philip, I know you know what I can do. I know you know the faithfulness I have. I know you know the miracles you've already seen. So I'm going to ask you this question to test your faith, to, to see the character of your faith, to see if you've been paying attention, to see if the, the doubting is still present or, or if your faith is still there. And what is Philip's response? Philip doesn't even actually answer the question, but he jumps to the conclusion. He says, hey, hey Jesus, like, I know it's a good idea that we want to feed these people. Like, I'm with you. I want to feed these people too. But like, I know you were a carpenter. I know you didn't like, you know, pass math maybe. Like, I know you didn't, you're not a mathematician. Like, but we only got 200 denarii. That, that's eight months worth of wages. Like, that's all we got. And that's all we have for ourselves to keep going. And even if we spent 200 denarii, if we spent eight months worth of wages, we wouldn't even be able to buy enough bread for every single person to have just a little bit. And so he doesn't even answer Jesus' questions, but he gives them a calculation. He gives them another problem. He answers the question with another problem. He's like, hey, you know, like you, you gave me a problem to try to solve, but I'm going to give you another problem. And Jesus, I'm, I'm going to have you figure this out because the problem you're giving me, the problem we got is worse. Because yeah, we need to feed these people, but my solution is to send them back to the villages. You know, in, in the other gospels, it talks about that, that they said they should just send them to the nearby villages and they can reconnect with them in the morning. They can go get food. They can go get their lodging. So Philip just skips the question altogether and he gives Jesus another problem. Like, hey, well, even if we had enough money, which we don't, we couldn't even buy them enough bread to eat just a little bit. 
And then I don't know where in this story, I don't know how fast it happened. I don't know if they were deliberating, talking, trying to figure it out. But it says that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, answers and said, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And I think we read that statement from Andrew. He starts off on the right track. He's like, hey, like, I know we don't have enough money. And like, God, like, I kind of remember, you know, you turning water into wine. I remember you, you know, catching those fish. Like, so he's on the right track. He's like, hey, we got five loaves and two fish. Like, it sounds good. It sounds like he's full of faith. But again, doubting comes back to his mind. And he says, but what are they for so many people? But what are they for so many people? And I love this part of the story because I think a lot of us, when we read this story, just like when we read the story of David and Goliath, we think we're David in the story. Uh, We think we're going to walk into a situation. We think we're going to walk into this thing going on, this this, uh, chaoticness going on in other people's life. And we're just going to walk up and we're going to be full of faith and we're going to go kill Goliath. But me and you, just like Lungs were talking about through 1st and 2nd Samuel, we're not David in the story. We're not the, the brave 200 men. No, we're actually the Israelites that were standing on the mountain. We're, we're the warriors afraid to fight Goliath. And just in this story as well, we are not the little boy that brings the five loaves and two fish. We are, we are either Philip who says, you know what, God, like, I know that I need to help and I need to serve in this area, but you know, I, I really don't got enough time to give. So I think I'm just going to let them take care of it. Or, or we're Andrew like, you know, God, like, I think I have a solution, but like, what's really the point? Because I, it's not going to help us. I mean, even if you think of Andrew's side, the five loaves and two fish wouldn't even feed the 12 disciples and Jesus. So he's like, you know, like God, like what I have, like is great, but I don't even think it's going to help. And that's who we are in the story. We're not the little boy. And I think we want to be the little boy in the story. And that's where I want to push us to this morning. That's why I titled this message, bring what you have. Because again, when we have the right perspective, when we have the faith like the little boy had, all we have to do, all that Jesus is asking us to do in this moment is to bring what we have. And you know, um, about three years ago, right when I got hired out of Bible college at, uh, at my old church and I was a young adult pastor, uh, my pastor uh, was in a Starbucks and he saw, you know, Starbucks sometimes have those community boards and you know, be sometimes real estate agents or, you know, just different promotional things. And he saw that this flyer for foster care respite nights. And I don't know if you know too much about the foster care system, but uh, the foster care system is pretty tragic at times. And it's an issue um, that I wish the church had more of a say in. I wish the, the church uh, had more of a voice in. I wish the church had more uh, of a presence in. And, you know, he, he saw this flyer and it, it asked for help for a respite night. And a respite night is these, these nonprofits, sometimes churches or, or organizations will throw the, these nights for a few hours every few months where parents and their foster kids can come and they'll get dinner and maybe play a few games. And he saw this need. And I think this is what a lot of us will do because I can imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of people have walked into the Starbucks and seen this. And I, I believe probably many, many believers saw this and saw, you know, this this seems like a great idea and I, I wish, but you know, like I already got my full-time job. I got my family. I got my kids. I got my sports. I, you know, NFL is starting this weekend. Like, I don't know if I got any more time to give. I got, I got to give time to my fantasy football team or, you know, I got to give time to my kids practice. So like, I think, you know, I already serve a little bit, you know, once 
uh, every once in a while on a Sunday. You know, I, I, I do, I feel like I do enough. I, I think that's what a lot of people saw, but I love what my pastor saw in this moment is that he did, he saw this issue and he didn't give an answer like Philip, like, you know, I'm just a pastor of a young adult ministry and uh, there's only so much I can give, but you know, all I got is 200 denarii and that's not really going to be enough to fix the foster care system. So I'm just going to walk away. Or, or, you know, he could have been like Andrew and be like, you know, we got a venue, we got a place, but it's young adults. Like, what are we going to do? But no, he came like a little boy and he saw this flyer and he began to talk to us and our team. He's like, Hey, there's this issue that I feel like we can have an impact on. And, and like, we don't have extra room in our budget for this. Like, we, we can't really, you know, we're, I can't adopt all the foster kids. You can't adopt all the foster kids. And, you know, we're dealing with young adult people who are in college and broke. They can't definitely ad- adopt young uh, foster kids and they can't give to it. But you know what we do have? We have time. You know what we do have is we have a venue. You know what we do have is we have the space for them to meet. And so you know what, what we're going to do? We're going to bring our five loaves and our two fish and we're going we're gonna to put this event on called Carachella. It's a party with a purpose. And what we're going to do is we're going to invite as many foster care families we have and we're going to get young adults to volunteer their time. And what they're going to do is they're going to show up and we're going to have bounce houses. We're going to have uh, snacks. We're going to have movies, video games, uh, water slides, petting zoo. We're going to have everything they could ever imagine and when they walk up, we're going to be cheering them on. They're all going to get a one-on-one buddy because, if, again, if you know about the foster care system, uh, a lot of families will uh, bring in foster kids with already their biological kids. And so there's this imbalance of attention because there's so many in the room or so many for, you know, there's only two parents and sometimes five, six kids. There's only so much one-on-one attention they can get. And so we're going to we're gonna give every kid a one-on-one buddy that they can have for four hours and they're, they're going to be the star of the show. And instead of the parents coming and hanging out too, you know what? We're actually going to give them a gift card to a restaurant or to a movie. And they're going to go out and enjoy a night alone, a little bit of peace and quiet for four hours. And, you know, we, we can't do it every night. We can't even do it once a month. But we're going to be able to do it every three months. We're going to do it four times a year. And we're going to make it the best we can. We're going to bring what we have. And we're going to allow God to do the rest. And that's what I want to encourage us this morning. Is that we need to bring what we have and allow God to do the rest. Because what happened after the little boy brought the five loaves and two fish, it says in chapter 10, as I close, or in verse 10, it says, Jesus said, have the people sit down and they broke them into groups. And as they sat down, Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they were had uh, eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And this is what I love about Jesus. And this is what I want to encourage us this morning is that all you have to do when you see a need in the world, whether uh, it's personal or whether it's something out there that you have a heart for, that you see people need, especially in a city like Chicago and the needs that are uh, presenting itself constantly, is our, is our perspective to step back and say, God, I don't have enough resources or my perspective to say, God, here's what I have. Here's my five loaves. Here's my, here's my two fish and you do the rest. Because what does it say? That Jesus took this and he distributed it. He, he used the disciples to continue to go out. They brought what they had. The little boy brought what they had 
and then the disciples distributed the rest. Jesus continued to provide for them, to feed 15,000 people, 20,000 people, enough fish, enough bread till they were full, and there was even enough left over that they could each individually, all 12 disciples, fill up a basket to have enough food. And that's the type of faith we need to have that we don't go into situations, that we don't go into trials, that we don't see issues present themselves and we push away from compassion because we think we don't have enough resources, but we actually step into compassion. We step into the eyes of Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and all we can do is bring what we have. All Jesus is asking us to do is bring what you have and have a willing spirit, have a willing heart and allow me to do what I want to do. And so can I pray for you this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this church. God, I thank you for every single person that calls Sozo City Church the home, every single person that is watching online right now. God, would you do the miraculous in their heart? God, for those who maybe struggle with compassion, God, would you give them uh, uh, the eyes to see those who are in need? God, would you break our hearts for what breaks yours? God, it's a dangerous prayer to pray. I remember praying it when I was in high school. I remember praying again when I was in college. And, and God, the issues you presented, the, the opportunities you presented my way when I prayed that prayer. And God, again this morning, and for all of us this morning, if we would be so bold, we pray that you would break our heart for what breaks yours. God, that we would look on people with compassion, not hate. That we look on people with, with, with grace and not judgment. God, but we would see those who are in need. We would see those who are hungry. We would see those who, who need our help, God. And, and we wouldn't look at that situation as an impossible task. But what we would do is we would be like the little boy and we would bring what we have, whether it's our time, whether it's our finances, whether uh, it's a space, whether it's a new idea. God, you would give us the innovation to help our people. God, that we would be a church that people know they can come to us when they need help. We'd be a church that the, the city knows that unleashes compassion. We'd be a church that helps those who are in need. And, and God, that it wouldn't just be a select few, God, but we'd be a church that are on fire for serving for you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, church, I hope that blesses you. Bring what you have, and we'll see you next week.